Evergreen Exchange. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Evergreen Exchange. We're rejoined by uh, the original interviewee, Louis Gov. Thanks for coming back, Louis. Hey, pleasure. You got selected as a repeat, not only because of your strong performance in episode one and the viewership numbers, <laughs> but because of your unique uh, knowledge and relationship with China. Maybe start by um, telling people a little bit about when you first went to Asia, what it was like then, what it's like now, and a little bit about GovCal's intertwined history with China specifically. So my my real relationship with China starts off when, when I go to college. My, my dad had gone... This is uh, the the very early 90s, and he did a study trip in Japan and um, China. Now, if you remember, in the early 90s, Japan was going to take over the world, right? So I actually started off... Pebble Beach, uh, Rockefeller Center. Yep. They were, you know, if you didn't learn Japanese, you'd never get another job. So I went off to college, and yeah, sure enough, I signed up for Japanese. And my dad had just done uh, a study trip, and he literally calls me from China, and he says, no, 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 drop Japanese. And he did a week in Japan, a week in China, and said, drop Japanese, you've got to do Chinese. Um, So I switched uh, switched to Chinese, and um, then I went... Uh, so this was at Duke, and then there was uh, Duke was one of the first universities actually to have a study abroad program at Nanjing University, and so I went there for uh, for about six months, um, improved my Chinese. Then I went back to, to France, and I started working for an investment bank, um, and you know, fairly typical French investment bank. They they bought a brokerage firm in Asia. They closed a the deal in June '97. July '97, the Asian crisis hits. Uh, so the brokerage they bought, you know basically is a write-off and uh, i was sent over with my boss from france to you know do the integration and so that was a, a great learning experience actually to see the implosion and how quickly that things can can unfold and that really so i started off living in singapore then moved to hong kong i uh, love living in hong kong and as a result actually i've actually uh, lived in hong kong more than i've lived anywhere in my life um so and it really put you on you know, kind of the front row seats for what happened between you know China's great expansion, and, and you time that right. Are you taking, are you calling that luck, or are you calling that skill? I'll always call it luck. <laughs> uh, no, no, we. I was definitely lucky to be at. You know, to be honest, the economic transformation we've seen in China in the past twenty years is simply unprecedented in the history of humanity. You know, more than five hundred million people that go from poverty to middle class. It's just never happened before, um, and most likely will never happen since uh, in, in just one generation. So it was no, it was terrific to have in essence front row seats at the biggest economic transformation the world has ever seen uh, it was a very very exciting time no doubt and, and that's a great transition uh, you and I were at dinner recently and the topic of war came up and I don't want to be too alarmist but I will <laughs> I, I will I will phrase this in a way that I think is sort of relates to the conversation we're having at dinner and I think sets the stage for sort of the conversation that we're going to have today which is 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 the trade war that we're seeing going on right now between China and the US the new form of war is this the beginning of World War 3 or is this just simple squabbling that's going on between two leaders um and sort of talk about that. I mean, we've talked about the whole pretext of this was, will we ever see a large-scale military conflict again? You and I were saying no, and some of the other people at the dinner were saying we will. And I, I would argue that what, what we're seeing now between the U.S. and China is the new, the new face of war. So uh, I think it's neither a trade war nor World War III. Um, I would argue it's a new Cold War. Um, uh, I think calling it a trade war is a misnomer. You know, this started, uh, sure enough, about trade. And I think for President Trump, it probably was uh, about trade uh, because President Trump does care uh, about trade. And he's always been very uh, vocal about his, uh, you know, liking for tariffs. But behind President Trump, if you look at uh, the China issue, the reality is, if nothing else, President Trump has really changed the narrative around China in, in Washington, D.C., uh, and what you have today with China is probably the only bipartisan issue in Washington, where both the Democrats and the Republicans agree that basically we need to contain China, we being the Western world, but really the U.S. I shouldn't say we because I'm not American. But uh, the Democrats and the Republicans agree that America should be containing China technologically, geographically, 
uh, and economically. Um, and, you know, you've, you've heard President Trump come out uh, several times and say, look, before I got elected, China was going to be the number one GDP in the world, uh, but now it isn't. Now, that's a hell of a statement to make, because if the goal really is to say, okay, we want to slow down China's economic growth, it's a big issue because China's, you know, China's obviously the second biggest economy in the world today, uh, but it also has been between a third and half of global GDP growth for the past couple of decades. And so to say we, we want to ratchet that down uh, is, in essence, uh, very much an, an anti-global growth agenda. Mm-hmm. So when I say it's a new Cold War, you know, I, th- I think if you're, if you're China today, after the Huawei affair, after the ZTE affair, uh, after the Mike Pence speech at the Hudson Institute, your feeling is not that, you know, the U.S. wants to rebalance trade. Uh, your feeling is that the U.S. wants to prevent China from technologically leapfrogging the United States. Your feeling is that the U.S. wants to prevent the renminbi from being Asia's reserve currency. Uh, your feeling is that uh, the U.S. wants to prevent China from having a deep water navy. And so, you know, so if you're China today, I think you're definitely more paranoid than you used to be, which means that even if you do strike some kind of deal with President Trump, whether at the upcoming G20 meeting or you know, somewhere in the, in the next year, your behavior from now on has changed. Your assumption is the U.S. is out to get me. And, and it's the old story, right? It's not because you're paranoid that people aren't out to get you. And so if you're China today, I think you look at all your core weaknesses. And, you know, China fundamentally has three massive weaknesses. Uh, the first is it imports a lot of semiconductors from the United States. That's actually, few people realize this, but China's number one import is semiconductors. They import for roughly $270 billion a year worth of semis. And that's obviously the card, the first card that the U.S. played, right? The U.S. turned and, uh, and told China, we're going to, uh, you know, no longer sell semis to you, which would put their economy in great difficulty. So that's the first weakness. The second weakness is energy. China imports roughly $170 to $200 billion a year in energy. And the third weakness is um, the dependence on the U.S. dollar. And what we've seen in recent years is that the U.S. uh, doesn't hesitate to weaponize the dollar. We saw the U.S. weaponize the dollar with Iran and cut Iran out from the dollar system. We saw it do with Venezuela. Now, of course, it would be, you know, economically devastating for the world if the U.S. said, well, you know what, China can't use the SWIFT system anymore, and China, you can't, you know, use dollar trade with China. That would create like a 1930s-style depression all over the world. So this is a highly unlikely scenario. But if you're China today, you have to look at all possibilities. And in essence, if your belief is the U.S. is out to get me, then you have to protect yourself on those three fronts. So great transition to my second question, which is, we talk a lot about our view of China or Trump's view of China. What is China? How does China view the U.S.? You know, the economy, the culture, and and Trump. So I think that's that's a great question because you know culturally, you know, different countries will, will have very different relationships with the United States. So if you look, for example, at Russia, Russia has a kind of a almost paranoid attitude uh, vis-a-vis the U.S. They always feel oh, the U.S. is out to get us, uh, etc. You know, people in France will, you know, think, oh, the U.S. is this, like, big bully uh, that, you know, uh, breaks like a bull in a China shop kind of of thing. In China, you know, up until recently, the view of the United States was, was frankly, a a very positive one. When you talk to people, you know, there was a sort of almost American dream-like of, you know, they wanted to live like Americans, right? They, They wanted the nice home with the, the two cars and the white picket fences and the uh, and basically what they saw in the movies and and a path to get there was you know sending your kids to uh, to college in the US and so you've seen you know frankly a lot of cultural exchanges and you know a lot of kids move a lot of chinese kids moving to the US to study and and so the the view i think if if you think of most countries in the world i think that the view in China of the U.S. was a fairly positive one, frankly. This has changed a lot, of course, over the, the, the past year and a half, where China today is feeling uh, like the U.S. is picking on them. And that basically, 
the U.S. is reacting badly to uh, to China leapfrogging the U.S. In, in a number of technology fields, and that by going after Huawei, by going after ZTE, the U.S. is sort of changing the rules of the games as, as it falls behind. Uh, I'm not saying that that's my view, but that, that's the view uh, that's the view in China. And so, you know, today the when you look at the media in China, when you look at at the rhetoric, the nationalist card is is like being played full on. Uh, you know, one of the big uh, rhetoric amongst the Chinese leadership is they can't accept the uh, the treaties that are being put, uh, the trade proposals that are being put in front of them because they're the equivalent of the unequal treaties. Now, for them to use that word is a very loaded word in China. The unequal treaties were the treaties that the Western powers imposed in China at the end of the Opium Wars that basically parceled out China, you know, and the Brits ended up with Hong Kong and you had the French Quarter in Shanghai, etc., so to go back to the rhetoric of the unequal treaties is a it's a very loaded uh, rhetoric from China. So today the the nationalist card is definitely being played, you know, to the full of its extent in in China. So you have alluded to this being the new Cold War, and I happen to agree with that. Um, and I think that that I think there's three three ways that you could sort of view what's going on with China. I think that you could view it first as saying this is Donald Trump picking something less concrete, no pun intended, than building a wall <laughs> in between the US and Mexico. Because you can make he can make the case and say, look at how many jobs I've saved, look at how much tariff money I've collected from um, China. And he can point to kind of less uh, objective victories when he looks at China. So in some ways, you could view this as a re-election tool. Yep. I think that you could take a more altruistic view and say, look, at um, U.S. companies have been totally taken advantage of with forced technology transfer, where Chinese, you know, the Chinese have basically forced tech companies to share intellectual property if they want to do business in China. And you could say we're, we're correcting a long overdue um, problem. Or you could maybe even take the the more extreme view, which is sort of what you and I are highlighting, that, that this is the U.S. saying, listen, it is in our, in our country's best interest to slow down the growth of China. I think all, all of these, you can, you can make all these points. The one thing, uh, you know, you, you mentioned President Trump, and, you know, he did run on the premise that he would, you know, put tariffs on China and that he would, you know, stop the transfers of technology to China, etc. So, you know, and a lot of the things that President Trump is doing, whether you like it or not, he said in his campaign he was going to do. So it's actually, in a sense, somewhat refreshing that you have somebody who gets elected and says kind of what he and he's doing what he said he would do the on that front you know it, maybe we shouldn't be surprised but whatever the reasons behind the, the u.s policies and you know there's success has many fathers and there may be many reasons for this for this shift in policy the bottom line is the shift in policy is there and if you're china and you're on the other side of it you almost you know you're not going to sit around all day wondering why are they doing this to me you're just acknowledging, okay, this is the new reality. This is the new situation, which means that I don't, you know, the U.S. is not yet, it's not an enemy, but it's no longer a friend. And that means that at the very least, I need uh, to be independent technologically uh, because the U.S. has very clearly decided to pick the first battle with China on the technology uh, battlefront by, you know, trying to take down Huawei and by banning the exports of semiconductors. Now, you know, so tech today finds itself at the center of the battle. Now, I don't think tech asked to be at the center of the battle. You know, nobody likes being the battleground. Though the, a lot of the CEOs long complained that they felt taken advantage of by China, and now here they find themselves kind of like, wait, Thanks, Trump, or not thanks, Trump. <laughs> but, you know, I don't think Apple was being complaining that they were being taken advantage of or Broadcom or any one of these guys, but here they are. So, you know, my dad is from Alsace, which is the, the region uh, that the uh, the French and the Germans kept fighting over. Uh, we fought the war there in 1870 and then in, again in 19, 1914 and against 1940. And tell you what, being the battleground sucks. You know, you're left ripped up, torn apart, everything destroyed. 
If you're a U.S. tech company today, in essence, what you're, what's happening to you is you've got the U.S. government telling you you can't sell to China anymore, uh, which is perhaps your fastest growing market. And perhaps you should stop producing there, which is how you've maintained pretty high margins. And then that's what the U.S. government is telling you. And then you've got the Chinese government telling you, you know what? We're going to throw money at building you a competitor. Cause, and we don't care if we make money or not, because for us, it's a question of national security. So that's really the worst of both worlds. Not only do you lose a client, but you gain a competitor. It's almost, thank you very much. And if you want to project yourself even further and you think, this is just the beginning and the China-U.S. relationship will get much, much worse from here, which I don't believe. But, you know, let's say there's a tail risk that this happens. Then you're stuck in the quandary of, if it gets really bad, you know, why would China even pretend to respect intellectual property? Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you look at the stock markets today and over the past 10 years, we've basically derated anything that was a real asset. You own a copper mine, you own a railway, you own an oil well, you own a pipeline. I don't care. That's useless. What I care about is intellectual property. Uh, and we've re-rated massively intellectual property. That was the thesis of my 2005 book, Our, Our Brave New World, uh, which you can download online from our, our website. The uh, for free, um, you know, the idea was intellectual property would be much, much more valuable because now all of a sudden it was globalized. It wasn't just in one market; it was global intellectual property. But what if we start, you know, falling up, you know, into a world with three different blocks? But more importantly, the only reason intellectual property has value is because governments protect it. If governments turn around and say, you know what, excuse my French, but screw it, um, the U.S is out to get me, so I'm not going to respect U.S. intellectual property, then I can reverse engineer a G jet engine. I can reverse engineer any kind of drugs and medicine and medical devices. I can reverse engineer a microchip. And, and, and here on this front, you know, you were asking me about, you know, when I first moved to China. When I went to China in the early 90s, China was graduating 360,000 university students a year, roughly half in the sciences. Uh, this year, China will graduate 8 million university students, roughly half in the sciences, and another million graduate students. So, you know, that's a hell of a lot of human resources uh, that if you want to start reverse engineering stuff, you can throw bodies at it. So the way I look at things today is... And, and I want to add that the U.S. is graduating like a tenth yeah. of the, in the sciences in the, in the STEM category. Yeah. yeah. And um, science, technology, engineers, and mathematics. Yeah. And if you think about it from that perspective and you say this is the Cold War, who's winning the arms race? You'd certainly look at it based on the education system and say China looks to be winning, right? But the the point that I, I was going to make there is when and you look and at— And how many of the 10th are Chinese to begin with? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> when you look at that— I think anybody listening goes, oh, my God, we're going to lose for sure, right, no, in no, terms no. of – but but <laughs> I want you to make a comment that I think that is, is often overlooked, which is from data that I've seen, and maybe you've seen something different, but data that I've seen says the one-child policy is starting to catch up with Chinese demographics. And, oh, yeah, and something, something to the effect of today, the working population of China has peaked, the working yeah. age population. And they're actually going – down, whereas the U.S. is going to continue to go up. Talk about the demographic situation in China. Is that a serious headwind to their growth? It is a serious headwind to their growth. Uh, it's also, incidentally, you're asking me if we're heading to World War III. Um, that's the main reason, actually, I think we won't have a war. You know, in China, what you have is an entire generation of only child. And it's actually the second generation. So the kids who are turning 20 today basically uh, not only do not have brothers and sisters, they also don't have cousins. And so that makes for, for you know, a fairly selfish generation. No, not a lot of guys who want to go die on the barricades. You know, when France and Germany were going at each other's throats, we'd have six, seven kids. You send four off to war, you get two back. It's sad, but, you know, life goes on. If you only have one kid, you can't lose him in a war. And now the, the U.S. demographic profile isn't that awesome either, by the way. Uh, it's not as bad as China's, but uh, the U.S. is also starting to age. And you're starting to see that in your Social Security spending and your Medicare spending and your Medicaid spending, which, you know, if you look at the past two or three generations, that's been always – 8 to 10% of GDP, uh, over the next 15 years, it's going to move from uh, the current 10% of GDP to 17% of GDP. But you, you really don't think that the reason that we're not going to have World War III, and this came up at the, I'm going back to the dinner that we had, isn't because the Chinese are saying, oh, I only have one kid. If I send him off to war, I'll go come back. I could end up with zero. It's because the 
reality of war, which, I mean, maybe you could comment, we talked a little bit about this, is it's just not practical to fight war the way that it was fought before. Yes, no, 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 any any wars that, you know, if if things get bad between the U.S. and China, you know, it won't be like tanks and, uh, you know, battleships at dawn kind of thing. It, uh, no, no, it'll be cyber warfare, it'll be in space. Uh, it'll be, I'll shut down your electricity grid. It'll be, it'll be those kinds of things. Um, but, uh, and you don't think that we're edging closer and closer to that? I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're there. No, the reality is, uh, the U S still has a lot of levers of pressure onto China before we get there. But the bigger question becomes, you know, what's, what's the U S's goal fundamentally with, with China? If the goal is, we don't want you to grow. That's a goal that, you know, China can't really compromise on, right? It's, you know, you, can, you can't sit down with somebody and say, you know, I, I want you to stay middle income uh, and sort of, you know, that's that's not a credible goal. But in war, it's not about compromise. It's about trying to force your will on the other person. And, and isn't one way to but, but exactly. bother and then, China? And then, no, no, I get that. But what is, but then that comes back to the question. What does the U.S. want out of China today? So uh, what about – you've talked a lot about this in, in conversations you and I have had offline. Cultural instability, right? I mean, what we've seen go on – talk about what you saw last – you know, the last two weeks in, in Hong Kong and, and the U.S.'s ability to perhaps erode cultural stability through through that. So I don't think anything in Hong Kong had actually anything to do with the U.S. That's like Chinese propaganda that, uh, you know, these demonstrations were organized by the U.S., you know, Hong Kong people don't need to be riled up by CIA agents to know that uh, their freedoms are being eroded by China. They're smart enough and educated enough to realize it all by themselves. So what happened in Hong Kong, um, you know, very simply, you know, Hong Kong, which used to be a British colony, was reverted to the Chinese on a deal of one country, two systems, where basically until 2047, Hong Kong gets to make its own rules. It has its own police, its own courts, its own currency, uh, its own taxation system, all separate from China. Um, even if China uh, owns you know, the territory and you know runs uh, runs the army and uh, and the foreign relations of Hong Kong. Now, one issue for Hong Kong was that there was no extradition rules. Um, so conceptually, just like Snowden uh, moved to Hong Kong when he uh, when he ran away from the U.S., you know, once once you got there, you were s- sort of a, a safe. And th- this goes back for, to historical reasons when you know a lot of Hong- uh, Chinese dissidents would find their way to Hong Kong, and when they got there, got to Hong Kong, they'd be safe. So the government tried to put in a new extradition law. And everybody saw through the risk that if you had an extradition law, that means that instead of being tried by a Hong Kong court, you could, you know, be ex- extradited to China and tried by a Chinese court, which would then uh, mean you know, not being tried by an independent justice system. And so you had two million people on the street out of a population of seven million. You know, two million—that's a lot. I mean, you know, you had to be there to see it. It's, it's just a lot of people. And it's it's great. I think it's great. It shows that Hong Kong will stand up to to defend its uh, the, the rights that China signed up for in 2047. One of the things that you've said about the U.S. is the U.S. the average U.S. citizen expects you know property rights, a democratic process. There's sort of a cultural contract that you know if you're a U.S. citizen you expect that. Um, it's a little different than what a Chinese citizen might expect from their government. Talk about sort of the differences in terms of like what each economy or what each government promises towards its people. Absolutely. So, and, and, you know, in terms of social contracts, I think you do have a very different one in Hong Kong than you do in China. You know, in Hong Kong, you do expect freedom of expression. You do expect, uh, you know, full, basically full civic rights, freedom of religion, and an independent justice system, which uh, none of which you have in China. No, I think, look, in China, the, the expectations are partly very low because you have to remember that in China between 1860 and 1975, China basically knew nothing but civil war, foreign invasions, famines, you know, it was anarchy. Uh, it was just China, you know, for a century and then some was one of the worst places in the world to live and to be from. And so, you know, when, when this is your background, you know, the what comes at a huge premium becomes stability. And so... You know, most people think that the Chinese Communist Party get their uh, credibility 
by delivering economic growth. But that's not true. It's not by delivering economic growth that the Communist Party gets its legitimacy. The Communist Party gets its legitimacy by delivering social stability. And that's because of China's own history of basically 175 years of just complete oh, – sorry, 120 years of just complete anarchy. But and how do they deliver social stability? Well, so yeah, – Lack of cr- civil war, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but by you know cracking down like, like we saw in 1989 in, in Tiananmen. Uh, you know, through a very, frankly, heavy police state. And today, you know, as, you know, technology gets better and better, the it's really going pretty far into, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons as well that China is leading to more and more discomfort around the world. You know, how they deliver social stability at home now is you've got, you know, camera recognitions, facial recognitions everywhere, artificial intelligence, Maybe you heard about their new uh, social point system, which is, you know, it's it's downright Aurelian. You feel like you're reading 1984, but basically China is, uh, China is increasingly becoming cashless. And so, you know, you pay everything through Alipay or uh, through your phone, etc. And so they just track all the money you spend. So, you know, if you drink too much alcohol, you'll get negative social points uh, and you're Life insurance premiums. So will then go you up. find friends that yeah. don't drink to buy it for you. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but uh, it, it gets pretty nasty because you know if if you get enough like negative points, you basically get on a on a negative list where all of a sudden you can't buy train tickets anymore, hmm. you can't buy plane tickets anymore, you can't travel abroad. If I'm on this naughty list and you call me up, my ringtone on the phone will be different. And so you will know that I'm on the naughty list. So you'll probably think, ooh, probably shouldn't be calling Louis because <laughs> don't want to be associating with him. So that's why your uh, phone rings that way. That's right. Exactly. And so you have uh, already 13 million people in China that are on this naughty list. In essence, you're creating this sort of cast of social outcasts, uh, for, for lack of a better word. And I think that's that's quite a dangerous thing to do. Now, a lot of these people are there for failing to pay back their debt, borrowing money and paying back their debt. And one of my big concerns is how this could affect entrepreneurial spirits in China. Because, you know, one of the great successes of the United States um, is that in the United States, you can, as an entrepreneur, you can fail the first time, fail a second time, fail a third time, and maybe succeed the fourth time. Um, America doesn't really punish failure. It uh, And it rewards, you know, success and doesn't really punish failure. In some ways, uh, you could say America encourages failure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you, you know, you go through Chapter Eleven, restructure, yeah. off you start go over. Again. Yeah, I mean, look at President Trump. The you've got a you know a president, yeah, but, history, in fail, but in history, China, right? failure is not looked at. Well, the it, same in, way. in China, President Trump would have ended on the naughty list. Uh, you know, with the, with given how many times he's gone through Chapter Eleven, etc. So. The now I'll, I'll let your readers decide whether that'd be a good thing uh, or a bad thing, but uh, each will have their own opinion. But the bottom line remains that today in China, you know, the the main thing of the government is social stability, and now that they have all these tools at their disposal uh, through technology, they're trying to use them to the full extent that they can, and that makes for a very weird. You know, it's. It leaves you with sort of a weird feeling. It feels not like very Orwellian 1984. So talking about that next generation in China, I mean, it's gone from, you know, almost no middle class to having a, you know, a ballooning middle class. Absolutely. Or, or, yep. And in America, there's a lot of talk about like millennial, millennial, millennial. What is this person? You know, it's the next generation who prefers things like shared economy. They don't value owning a home, having children as much. They get married later. They're more philanthropic. They care about the environment. There's this whole millennial type um, yep. stereotype. And I mean, I think that there's probably a lot of truth to it in the United States. And I wonder how regional that is, meaning is is really the average 28-year-old or 30-year-old in China, are they really that different in terms of their wants and views of the world? Because I... I, I think a, they're more ambitious. More I, ambitious. But, but my question, don't... It was so hard 20 years ago to kind of know what somebody in China might be thinking or what somebody in the U.S. And I wonder, you know, are, are they more similar? Like, And I guess what I'm getting at is 
doesn't the Chinese 30-year-old start to ask for more than the social contract of stability that his parents or her parents' generation asked for? Don't they want more things, you know, whether it's not to be tracked or to be able to search anything they want on the Internet and see the result that we're used to seeing? Are they really okay with that? Because here, that seems preposterous. And so talk about that. Yeah, so the first thing, of course, it's always very hard to generalize, right? This, uh, you know, in China, you got 1.3 billion people. So, you know, obviously th- that comes with a massive level of, of diversity. And I would say that uh, in a lot of ways, you know, Ch- China, you know, it, it often feels like it's three steps forward, two steps back in terms of, of freedoms that, that people get. But, you know, your 30-year-old your today in China is a lot freer than the 30-year-old was 20 years ago uh, in terms of the life choices you can make, uh, in terms of the lifestyle you can decide to have or she. So, you know, you know we shouldn't paint too dark a picture either. I think a lot of them indeed do wish that uh, they, you know, could have all the freedoms we enjoy in the West, of course. But I, I don't think that it's something that they see as, as a big hurdle. You know, going back to what you were describing before uh, with the one-child policy in China, what you have to, to remember is this is like a social experiment such as the world has never seen, where you have an entire country of only children. And, and predominantly male-only children. No, no, no. That's, uh, uh, you know, initially in the one-child policy, uh, there was some infanticides of, of little girls. Uh, but that's uh, that's mostly gone now, actually, partly because people realize that you have a boy, he turns 18 and he says goodbye and, you know, maybe maybe comes home for Chinese New Year if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, but girl, you know, the, the, the logic is girls actually will take care of her parents and grandparents. So the whole infanticide thing and, you know, aborting the baby uh, girl fetuses, et cetera, that's that's really abated. But the uh, because uh, it's it's Chinese health care for the parents. Yep. Right, to have a daughter. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and a boy, again, at 18, he's like, yeah, see ya. Yeah, yeah. The, but going back to um, uh, the one-child policy, um, so you have you know these kids, they have two parents, four grandparents. You know, that's a lot of pressure on their shoulders. A lot of pressure to, you know, uh, you know, often they have to pay for their parents or pay for their grandparents, or they have pressure to succeed, right? You know, however you want to define success. But very often it gets defined in monetary terms. Um, so all too often they don't have the really the luxury to sit around and think, you know, who am I really and where do I want to go? And where it's like, you know, got to get out there, get a job and make sure I make enough money to support all these people. So it's, um, you know, it, it's they don't have all the uh, typically the luxury of having the anguish that your typical millennial in the Western world will have. So I'll, I'll make an argument that I always make for the U.S. or Western culture specifically, and we talked a little bit about it with entrepreneurs. It's great that, that China's graduating so many scientists and, and people in the STEM categories. That's wonderful. But if you don't have a culture of an entrepreneurial culture, what does it matter? I mean, those people will never take the chances to start companies. They want to be, you know, executors of somebody else's vision, and generally they come here to work for somebody else's vision. How do you, aside from stealing the ideas from from the West and then just replicating them, do you do you buy into the idea that Chinese culture just won't be as innovative? No, I don't buy it at all. Um, I don't buy into it at all. You know, an old joke in Asia is that Japan's a profoundly socialist country on which capitalism was imposed, while China is a profoundly capitalist country on which socialism was imposed, and then they're all drifting back to their natural environment. You know, Chinese people are Im- uh, they. There's a huge culture of entrepreneurialism, uh, and you see it all over Southeast Asia, right? You go to places like Indonesia, like Thailand, like Malaysia. Uh, most of the businesses are owned and run by Chinese people. And, you know, the idea that uh, there's no entrepreneurialism in China to me is uh, foreign. It, it, it doesn't reflect the reality on the ground And that if you go, you know, today, it's pretty simple. Take the tech sector as an example. Obviously, the U.S. has the, sec- the, has the biggest tech sector in the world. But who's got the second biggest tech sector? Uh, it's China. And then whoever's third is, like, way, way far behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, take a, town, take a town like Seattle where we're, you know, uh, obviously, you know, if you go back 35 years ago, Seattle, you know, the, the joke was, you know, the, the last guy sure. out should turn the lights off. Then, you know, Microsoft comes here. 
and obviously Microsoft is a huge success. And from there, you sort of sprout an ecosystem of lots of different things. And now you come here, and you've got Microsoft and you know Amazon, of course, but uh, Starbucks and Expedia and Costco, etc. You create these ecosystems. Um, I could say today you're seeing that ecosystem definitely around Tencent and Shenzhen. You're seeing it around uh, Hongzhou um, with Alibaba, and so. You know, and those are obviously the two big names. But but behind that, you have you know dozens of companies in, in China doing uh, interesting things. Whether you know Pinduoduo, JD, Meituan, uh, you know the list the list goes on. Uh, now you could say, well, you know Alibaba, all they did was copy the Amazon business model and adapt it to China. Uh, sure, why not? Uh, but that brings you to the, of course the particularity of China is that the size of the underlying market in China is such that actually. You know, you sometimes you don't need to reinvent the wheel, sure. right? You can take a business model that works somewhere sure. uh, that worked in the U.S. and you say, "All right, I'll take this business model, adapt it to these needs, and off I go." Um, but you're not making my point for lack of innovation for me. No, no. You? But you've had, you've had. But you know, if you look at today, so this was how they got started. But you look at, for example, in fintech, I would argue that China mm-hmm. is far ahead of the U.S. in fintech. Sure. In artificial, especially cashless payments. I've heard you know, it's just yeah, it's just nobody uses cash anymore. So fintech, China's far ahead. Artificial intelligence, China is probably ahead of the U.S. If you look at, uh, you know, in the telecoms, Huawei and ZTE were basically owning half of the global market. So I just have a hard time squaring though what you said before about getting on the naughty list for failure and and all that stuff. <laughs> but with, so that's with, a new development. That's a new development. And so I think China, you know, through the past twenty years when I've been there, has been immensely entrepreneurial. My fear is, you know, with these naughty lists, and it's basically by rising the price of failure, China uh, could undermine this. That, but that that you know, all this is very new. So we'll know in. 10 or 20 years whether that's what they've done mm-hmm. so that, that's a fear mm-hmm. looking ahead but it hasn't been a problem for the past 20 years because you know 20 years ago you didn't have the naughty list do you how do you see north korea fitting into all this so look i think north korea has always been sort of the sort of the, you know the little chinese attack dog where when china wanted to be a pain in the ass to the u.s they could unleash north korea who would just go rattle the cage mm-hmm. um and you know, I think today China's view is they want to diffuse the tensions. They they don't want to r- rack up the tensions. So I, I don't see North Korea as being a problem in the near term, again, unless things get really bad in, uh, with the U.S. So, you know, if you want to be a, 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 a cynic, maybe you think, oh, well, North Korea is going to be quiet up until two months before the election. <laughs> and then North Korea flares up again. So that Trump, who's been going around saying, you know, I solved North Korea by, you know, meeting with Kim Jong-un, et cetera, all of a sudden that turns out to be not true. And then he's stuck in a situation where, oh, do I want to start a war with North Korea two months before the election, et cetera? If I were China, maybe that's how I'd play it. Uh, mm-hmm. If if my feeling was, uh, you know, I'd rather get Trump out and somebody else in. Uh, but, you know, for now, China doesn't even know who's running against Trump. So keep the North Korea card close to your chest. And then you decide mm-hmm. six weeks before the election on whether you play it or not. I'm just sort of suggesting that is there a chance that 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 becomes part of the trade package Could from, from China? It's yeah. hey, we're gonna we'll we'll, get, we'll give that up. We'll give up. We'll, we'll make North Korea comply or be more complicit. Yeah. But we need to make this thing go away. And yep. and I mean, if you're Trump, what what matters more, right? Do you want to say? Going into the 2020 election, I solved the North Korea problem, and we have a new trade trade agreement with China. Or do you want to go to the your constituents in America and say, you know, I'm towing a hard line on China because this is what's going to bring jobs. It's going to protect our intellectual capital. I happen to think that this is such a good you know headline and and battleground for him to fight because and most of all because it's very hard to prove, but it sounds good. I, I agree. Uh, I think Trump will probably wait a while before making that decision, partly depending on who he's running against. I think if he's running against, say, a Bernie Sanders, he probably needs to appeal more to the blue-collar worker, so may need to not have a deal with China. If he's running against a, a, a Joe Biden, he you know that's less of an issue, and so he can perhaps 
you know, then make a deal with China and make a deal with North Korea and indeed say, you know, Joe Biden says, you know, he's a great diplomat and et cetera. But, you know, they did nothing for eight years. And look at me. I've solved North Korea and I've solved China. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And they they weren't particularly tough on North Korea. And look how look how much progress I made there. Exactly. Yeah. So I think I think you I think, you know, he he's not going to make that decision until, you know, this time next year. So we've talked tons about China and maybe just we'll pivot a little bit towards the end and talk about um, the Fed because I'm not that smart, but I've been trying to follow this for the better part of, of my career since I got in the business. And it, it's it, pretty easy. It's pretty easy. As the market makes new high, the Fed needs to cut. <laughs> okay, which which is sort of where my confusion starts because if we to to make it really simple, we went through the great financial crisis of 2008, 2009, and there was widespread panic, and, and the Fed basically said, I know what we're going to do. We're going to cut interest rates to zero. We're going to make conditions easier for borrowers. We're going we're to convince people that if you save your money, you don't make anything. And so we're going to force you to take some risk with that. That was sort of the bet that the, the central banks decided to experiment with um, following the 0809 crisis. Fast forward 10 years later, you had a stock market, a U.S. stock market that had rebounded dramatically profoundly the longest bull market in history and, and and yet yet the rhetoric went from the fed saying we we you know we fixed this we solved this look at how great of an idea we had um you know patting themselves on the back and and then you started to have people saying things like well hold on a second you cut interest rates to zero Asset prices, stocks, real estate, the people that had money or have assets, yeah, they did great. But this wasn't all that helpful to Main Street. This started to become the narrative that people accepted, right? This started to become like, hey, it kind of worked. We had to do it at the time. It, but it really benefited the rich. It didn't really benefit the middle class. And so now, here we are, 10 years into the the, recover, into the bull market, and you have them I think the Fed funds market's pricing in almost an, a sure uh, Fed cut in, um, in July. In July, yep. which, and by the way, the stock market's making new highs. So you can't argue that you're doing it to help the stock market. And the rhetoric from including members of the Fed have said it didn't really help Main Street. So why are they touching the lever again? Can you explain to me? I don't get it. So I think, look, we got to take a step back. Um, and the big question is do we believe central banks create wealth or not? I personally don't think central banks create wealth. What they do is they push you to consume tomorrow's wealth today. So what we've done, and it's, you know, it's the old Keynesian thing of, oh, you know, in the long run, we're, we're all dead. And I think what's, what's increasingly becoming obvious is, yes, central banks collapsed interest rates, pumped up asset prices, pushed us to consume tomorrow's wealth yesterday now and now now we're in the long run um and we're not quite dying but growth is slowing down and so we're here uh now if you're a central bank what you do you know as you face weakening growth numbers you go back to the only thing you can do which is try to push up asset prices um but we know that uh, they didn't really help growth numbers all that much no no but what else can you do right you want to be seen you want to be seen doing something um but why do they have to i mean i'm I'm kind of peppering you here, but why do they have? To, why do they feel like they have to do something? You have low unemployment, low inflation, and, and an all-time high in the stock market. Why are they compelled to, to be, act? Because they—that's uh, a great question. The answer, I think, is pretty simple. Because they have low inflation, they feel why not? There's there's no downside in me in me doing this, and I can just let rip. Of course, the downside is you further amplify asset prices and thus you further amplify the divisions in our societies between people who have assets and people who will never be able to afford a home. What um, about the inflate away the debt argument? The um, You know, you don't need – if you want to inflate the debt, debt away, you could do what Japan does, which is have indeed the central bank, you know, buy the debt and, and one day cancel it. Just say, all right, you know, you've got, you got the debt here and the liability there. The uh, but that basically ends up really being currency debasement, and you know no central bank has come out and said they were going to do this. Partly because I think if you do, 
you run the risk of all of a sudden people losing faith uh, in, in, in your currency, which is most likely where this will end up at some point. Thank you. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. where I wanted to go yeah. with this, which yeah. is, isn't what we're really, really just starting to, to realize is that the government's ability or willingness to preserve the integrity of their currency is being eroded. And doesn't that make the case for and against, and then you can weigh your opinion on which one you believe, doesn't that lead to a digital currency ultimately becoming something that's not manipulated by somebody with a vested interest in their own nation's interest, right? A global currency or the global digital currency that is not tied to a country's specific outcome. Doesn't, isn't that where this ultimately leads? I don't know if it's 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, but isn't that the end game? So perhaps, you know, perhaps it's gold or perhaps it's you do have countries that are not manipulating their currencies uh, f- for the outcomes. Um, you know, Canada was the one G7 country that never embraced QE. And, um, you know, and they take the fluctuations in the Canadian dollar and so be it. If you look at China today, I find it interesting that, you know, as you get into the trade war, the reaction of the market, and on May 5th, you know, Donald Trump tweets a bunch of anti-China tweets. Uh, the reaction was of the market was, uh, immediately sell the renminbi. Renminbi went down one and a half percent, and the view, pretty simply, was oh, China's slowing down because of the trade war. So now what you're going to see is China stimulates, uh, and that means throwing on you know more bad debt onto a re- already fairly large pile, and down the road that will mean the currency weakening. And Chinese policymakers all came out, whether Liu He or Xi Jinping and various central bank officials all came out and basically drew a line on the renminbi and said, you know what, we're not going to stimulate and we'll take the pain if we have to. Because China, obviously, this goes back to China's main three main weaknesses, uh, the third one being its de- dependence on the U.S. dollar. China needs to cut its dependency on the dollar, and the only way it can do that is by having a strong renminbi. And so, you know, I think you, what you're going to see is uh, different currencies. You'll have the currencies that debase themselves and the currencies that don't. And a lot of the world savings will flock to the currencies that don't today. So who are, what, where are, the, where are those countries? You mentioned Canada, uh, where else? If I in- think, I think Canada, I think the Swiss, well, Swiss Franks a, a tricky one, but I think Canada, uh, is definitely one of them. I think the renminbi is another. Um, and I think frankly, a lot of the Asian currencies that are increasingly, if you look at the volatility of the renminbi against the other Asian currencies, they're increasingly being pegged to that one rather than the U S dollar. And so, you know, for me, what we're seeing today with the fed softening, uh, it stands with, um, at a time when equities are at all-time highs uh, and at a time when uh, gold is breaking out, uh, I think what we're seeing is the top in the U.S. dollar. And, you know, w- one of my rule of thumbs, uh, I can, I'll send you the chart to send to, to our listeners if they want, is you look at the top 10 uh, companies in the world MSCI. And at the end of each decade, you have a clear trend and a clear vision. So in 1980, Eight out of the top 10 companies by market cap in the world were oil producers. And the view back then was obviously oil prices were going through the roof. And the view was that democracy always leads to inflation. That was like the, the common the common view. So the only way to hedge yourself was to own these oil producers. Oil was 35% of the world MSCI. In 1980, you said, you know what? I don't own oil. I'll buy the rest. You could go on a holiday for 10 years. Mm-hmm. You came back in 1990. Nine out of the top 10 companies in the world were Japanese companies in 1990. Japan was 45% of the world MSCI. And out of those nine, six were banks, which basically have done nothing but have destroyed value in Japan. You could have uh, bought anything but those 10. And- uh, you, could have, you could have bought anything. Yeah, you, you've gone on holiday 10 years. You came back in 2000s. 2000, you had basically it was the TMT bubble. Nine out of the 10 were telecom stocks, media stocks, or, uh, or, uh, or technology stocks. Again, you sold those, bought the rest. Tech was 35% of the world MSCI. You sold that. You went on holiday. Came back in 2010, and the view was China's going to take over the world Mm -hmm. and peak oil. So basically, in the top 10, you find BHP, you find Petrobras, you find PetroChina, you find Royal Dutch Shell. Um, You fade that belief. Today, Mm -hmm. eight out of the top 10 companies in the world are tech stocks. We're back. And eight out of the top 10 are American. The the two that aren't American are Alibaba and uh, Tencent. Mm -hmm. And the view today, you talk to people, it's, oh, the U.S. is by far the cleanest dirty shirt, A. And B, you know, big tech has a comparative advantage that uh, 
the monopoly, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is whenever you get too big, first, the governments come after you, and we're now mm-hmm. entering a phase where the mm-hmm. government's coming after you. And second, it's very hard to grow when you're that big. You know, mm-hmm. when you're a trillion-dollar company, it's really, really hard to grow. And so, you know, maybe fifth time's the charm, and mm-hmm. you, your people are right to be overweight all these tech stocks. My guess is in 2030... Uh, ten years from now, hopefully we'll sit down to do a podcast at that point. My guess is the belief by then will be that it'll be the same belief as 1980, that democracy always leads to inflation and that you know, the U.S. dollar is trash and that you don't want anything to do with it. I agree. I think that um, it's weird when you see tech and telecom in 2000 and then you see it back you know, 20 years later with, with a different with a different premise, because the reason that it didn't work in 2000 was because the companies were really, you know, it was smoke and mirrors, right? They were ridiculous so, valuations. So the only one that stayed, if you look at that list from 2000 and that it's Microsoft, Microsoft yeah. that's yeah. the only one from that list in 2000 that's still in that list in 2020. And the area that I agree with you, I think, makes it tricky is, is you can do the same thing with the NASDAQ and go back and see what are the biggest tech companies 10 years. Because yeah. one of the easy narratives is, well, technology is what's fueling everything, right? Yeah. Even, you know, whether it's McDonald's or automakers or even energy companies, this is all a function of technology. And so then I think one really easy, you know, I think the knee-jerk reaction, well, then just own the NASDAQ, right? That's what we should do. Or own big tech, right? Own, yeah. own the, the fastest-growing tech companies. But when you go back and you look at the top 10, it is, I mean, tech is fast-moving, so it, it evolves very quickly and it changes very quickly. So while tech is a theme is, is a theme that I'm totally all in on, I think it's hard to know where to be in tech. Absolutely. And look, you know, so Microsoft was the biggest company in 2000, and it's again the biggest company today in 2020 or 2019. But it definitely wasn't the biggest in 2010. Oh, I was uh, just going to say, remind it, Steve Ballmer that it was a straight <laughs> ride up. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't a nice. Uh, no. It wasn't. Case, it no. wasn't. It wasn't a nice. We went from a 500 billion dollar market cap to a trillion market cap over the 20 years. No, you went from 500 billion down to 200, and then from 200 flat to flatline for a long time, yeah. and then and then, to, and then exploded higher. Yeah. So the uh, um, anyway. So you know, very possibly Microsoft. You know, if you look at those top 10 uh, companies tech companies uh, in the world today, you know, some of them might still be in the top 10 in 2030. Will all of them be? I doubt it. Yeah. So we'll put that chart on Twitter that you mentioned under your account or our account. And then why don't you tell people who want to learn more about GovCal or read more about stuff that you write where they can get that stuff? I waited till the end. Sorry about that to plug you. <laughs> no, that's all good. We're down to one listener uh, probably. <laughs> well, but it's a loyal one. It's, a loyal. it's one that will for sure buy it. So, sir or madam, thank you very much <laughs> for staying all this time. The first thing I'd plug is actually my book. I recently wrote a book called Clash of Empires. You can buy it on Amazon. And I'd like to think it's a good read. It's uh, had some decent reviews. Uh, or if you're an evergreen client, you can you know drop by the office and pick up your copy. The uh, the best place, of course, is our website, uh, gafcal.com. That's G-A-V-E-K-A-L.com. Um, yeah, there's lots of stuff on there. Uh, I'm on Twitter, but in fairness, I seldom post. Although I, I will post uh, now that chart I just mentioned. Okay, great. And and any listener here that's not aware, we write a, a weekly newsletter that you can sign up for at evergreengovcal.com. And uh, it's uh, p- published weekly, written by various members of our investment team, sometimes Louie. Um, so we appreciate all the, the listeners and, and readers that are tuned in today. Thank you. Thank you very much.